Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard. I am very excited today. Uh, my guest today is a guy, this is the first person I've ever interviewed that actually works in front of the camera and also produces behind the camera as well. So I'm, I'm very excited about my guest today, Bill Bellamy. But before I bring on Bill Bellamy, as I like to always do, I like to uh, do a few things of uh, orders of business here. First, I wanted to, I, I got a couple of letters from a few people that I wanted to read. I thought it was important to, to let you know about uh, what some people are saying that sometimes I don't even understand or, or um, notice. Uh, in regards to Campbell McLaren, I got this um, email. I found it very interesting how Mr. McLaren acknowledged his exit from the UFC by being overly intimidating in the news with all the death stuff regarding how he perceived fighters could die and that he would hope it would spark interest from the far right, hoping Falwell would jump on the response sparking an interest because of his extremism. But it went awry with McCain's the good guy endeavor to take him and the UFC down in the beginning, because having that polarization could spark a media madness in a way. To hear that particular story, and to hear an individual like Campbell McLaren take a risk and own it, was enlightening to me. And who would have otherwise known 
but to hear it spoken about that way on your podcast. And that comes from Colleen L. Uh, whether you're someone trying to make it in Hollywood or you're just interested in all the behind the scenes in the entertainment world, you will love the show. That's from Stefan C. Thank you, Stefan. My cold open, which is always something that uh, is uh, a six degrees of separation for my guest. Um, I actually had the privilege of uh, meeting Bill at a comedy club that I owned in Greenwich Village on West 3rd Street called the Boston Comedy Club, which many comedians affectionately referred to as Anne Frank's Comedy Attic. Um, it was a lovely little shithole on West Third Street between Thompson and Sullivan Streets above a uh, Irish bar. And somehow uh, I made it work. And what I do a lot of times to get the comedians in a, in a manner where they would get excited and there was a perception that things would be happening, I would try to fly people in from uh, any kind of show that was doing comedian segments it wouldn't matter if it was the letterman show tonight show or whatever it was i would fly people and put them up in a hotel and all they'd have to do is see a bunch of comedians for their way and i would let all the comedians perform and they would do it for nothing and they would have a hope of getting on network television for instance one time i invited this guy eric fagan from evening at the improv across the country from california to New York. I paid for his hotel and his flight, and I told him in order to do that, he'd have to come see five shows, two Friday, three Saturday, and see 50 comedians. And he ended up booking 17 of them. But occasionally, in New York, there were New York companies that were doing showcases, and I didn't have any leverage. The only leverage I had was persistence to keep calling them and asking them if they would do their showcases at my club because they were doing them at all the great clubs like Catch a Rising Star or the Comic Strip or the Comedy Cellar. Why would they come to Anne Frank's Comedy Attic, the Boston Comedy Club, to do a showcase? But I would always be persistent. And there was these people at MTV that I knew were, were wanted to do a, a, a VJ search. They wanted to find a comedian to be a VJ. And this is about 20 years ago. And um, I said I, would, I wanted to do that and I would help them put people on. But they were very, very, very adamant that they would pick who came on. So I'd submit them a bunch of people and they just selected who they wanted to select and put on their own people and I got the final list to them faxed to me because there was no email back then and the list you know was a fun list but it was lacking anybody with any kind of style or color it was a heavy Caucasian lineup of men and um the people involved at the time, I believe, were Lisa Berger, who has gone on to do so many great things and was the one of the head people at E! during the Chelsea Handler and all the shows going on there. And now she's uh, working, I believe, at Fox uh, in a very big, big position over there. There was Robin Reinhardt, who was uh, working on the casting as well, who uh, is, is just doing amazing things in the business. Tracy Jordan was one of the head people in charge then. Judy McGrath, who 
as we know, is like Big Mach at MTV, Tom Freston above that, and Van Toffler, who's really the head of the Viacom family there, who was the business affairs people doing the deals at the time. And I remember calling Lisa Berger and a few of the other women there and told them there was a guy that I had seen at my comedy club, and I really, really loved him a lot. And 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 his name was Bill Bellamy. And Bill, when he'd come to the club, was fascinating about Bill. You'd have these, you know, in comedy, when you're gutting it out at these nights, any comedy club you go to, you're basically looking at comedians who look like they've been working underneath their car for about the last six hours. You know, they just, they have no sense of style. They have no... They even, some comedians just try to have no style just to be cool or whatever it is. But it's just every single person you meet in a comedy club, I can guarantee you 99.9% have absolutely don't try to look good. Even the women, if you, you know, if you look at the women who go on stage, none of them are dressed up or have, you know, they just try to downplay everything. But Bill Bellamy... He was different. He had like this stuff in his hair. I don't know what you call the stuff. It was some kind of like, some kind of stuff you saw on like, uh, you know, on a kid and play video. It was like this, this like, I don't know if it's called Jerry Curl stuff, but his hair always had this look like it was like terminally wet. Like he, like he was taking a shower wherever he was going along the way. And his hair was like straight up. It was shaved on the sides. It was straight up. It was kind of like that thing as a Jewish guy when you go to a bar mitzvah for the first time when it was cool and you wore the leisure suit and people were saying, hey, he's cool, he's hip, that's Barry Katz, he's wearing the leisure suit. And then a year later, you walk to a bar mitzvah with a leisure suit and people say, get him out of here, take him out now, get security. This guy is, uh, and he had that kind of look on his hair that you just, you, you, you know, if you saw pictures of it like two years later, you would be like, could we burn those photos? But his suits, he wore these suits that were incredible, these iridescent, like, colors not found in nature, these suits. It was just unbelievable. And with these ties that were literally thinner than a pencil. And he would always come in with this, just gorgeous girls, like the most beautiful women, also dressed like they were, like to the nines like they were going to a black funeral or something i don't know what it was <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so and so but he'd go on and he'd always kill and then he'd just walk off into the sunset like the you know like the banner from the incredible hulk you know he just disappeared off into the village with the beautiful girl and you know but he always killed in this room that was so kind of like it wasn't it didn't feel like he belonged and so i i remember calling them and i wasn't managing anybody at the time i didn't even know what a manager did but i just i wanted to make an impact on comics i wanted to do some good things and so i um i called them to put him on the show and they said no, and I called them again. And Bill didn't even know this at the time, but I just felt like, I don't know, my instinct told me that he had a shot to do something special on the show. And I believe I also had Jay Moore on the show, and he ended up 
hosting a, a show called Lip Service on MTV, so he actually did some interesting things for them as well, but not in this capacity. This was a VJ search. Um, and so the showcase went on, and there were uh, several comedians from that time there, some from out of town in Long Island, some from upstate New York, some from Manhattan, some from other places, and Bill. And, um, and they ended up putting him on because I perceive it to be... Be because, again, those of you who listen to this podcast, if you're persistent and you keep hammering away at somebody chances are you're going to get what you want or else you're going to at least the worst that can happen is they keep saying no to you and the best that can happen is you're going to get the shot of doing something but even if you are persistent you still have to do the job and so long story longer the showcase happens bill um does it and he kills i mean he just you know mops the place up and he looks like a million bucks with his iridescent suit and his little tie and his beautiful girlfriend with the braces off in the corner laughing in this mostly all-white crowd. And um, I got the call, I believe it was from Lisa Berger and Robin Reinhardt, and I think it was Tracy Jordan, that they wanted Bill to screen test. And so, and I gave them and I put them in touch with him and he went in and he did the screen test against some other uh, people. And amazingly, as fate would have it, in my first turn of doing anything with Bill Bellamy, he booked that job. And he became a VJ on MTV that bridged the gap between all the styles of music that were happening at that time from Kurt Cobain to LL Cool J, Michael Jackson, Madonna, everything that was happening at the time. And he was a guy that brought it all together, not just for my generation, but for every generation. And so what's odd to me about what happened there is that just a little twist of fate, just a little persistence, just a little extra something and you have a guy that was literally seen by millions and millions and millions of people and made his mark on America and the world. And to me, the lesson is, if you're persistent and after you get the opportunity, if you can deliver better than anybody else, then you can make your mark and launch your career. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. 
It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. It's me, Barry Katz. Uh, I'd like to introduce my guest today. This is going to be a long, long introduction because this guy has a <laughs> list of credits that are insane. Um, so I'll just tell you a little bit about this guy that you might not know already. This guy grew up in Newark, New Jersey. He started doing stand-up while he was at Rutgers. And he had the fortune of being one of the first comedians ever to be on Def Jam. He was on the first Def Jam show with Martin Lawrence, Bernie Mac, and Adele Givens. We're going to talk about that where he notoriously coined the phrase that we all use to this day and some of my producers that I'm looking at still use, booty call. <laughs> he also became a staple, as I said, on MTV as one of the VJs of the network and hosted several of their blocks, including MTV Jams and the MTV Beach House. Uh, he landed his own show, The Bill Bellamy Show, and he starred in several cult movies that are amazing that you still watch this day, like Love Jones, How to Be a Player, uh, The Brothers, and of course, Any Given Sunday. Um, he's been on so many different television shows. He has been a recurring uh, performer on Tyler Perry's Meet the Browns. He's been a guest star on shows like Castle, Royal Pains, including Fastlane, one of my favorite shows that he did on Fox. He's hosted Last Comic Standing on NBC, Who's Got Jokes. Um, he's basically done three-hour specials uh, that are amazing. The last one was a documentary special called uh, Ladies' Night Out, which followed him and uh, three or four of his fabulous uh, companions. He's also uh, starring in a show that the executive produces called Mr. Box Office with John Lovitz and Vivica Fox. There's so much to talk about, so much to say. Please welcome my guest today, the fabulous, the man, the myth, the legend, Bill Bellamy. Oh my goodness! That feels good, man. I did actually do some stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> that feels good. It feels really good. Wow. 
You've done a lot. You know, of stuff. I forget about it. Like you know, I keep moving on to the next thing. But when you hear it, you just go, "Wow!" I mean, I'm so thankful for my career because there's a lot of fun moments in there, and I enjoy all of it. You know, so far everything that I've done has just been like, "Wow!" Just like one of those little little dreams you can't believe you accomplished. Well, it's true because when you when you came into the Boston that time. I remember. Your, I, your, I remember like it was yesterday. Your only thought was to me. Your thought was, "Listen, can I, you know, can I become a regular here? Yeah, can I become a regular?" Here? I remember when you called me. <laughs> you do, Bellamy. <laughs> it goes, Bellamy. There's some people that are coming here from MTV, and uh, I think you're good. I think you're ready. I think you come here. You just do what you do. I was like MTV. I didn't have cable at the time. I was like, "What's that?" Trust me, you it's good move. So I, I remember getting there, and uh, what I remember about your club, it was so tight. Like, it's really, really tight. Like, the chairs are, like, literally on the stage. Like, you got to kind of wiggle your way to the little stage The right stage there. was the size of a Ritz cracker. Yeah. <laughs> it was ridiculous, but it was one of the best comedy clubs because you had the low ceilings, and you, you feel every person's uh, emotion, you see every face, and if you hit a joke in there out the park, it sound like thunder. I remember, it used to always sound like thunder in there. And um, I just remember uh, doing my set. I don't remember what I was talking about back then, but I remember everybody dying laughing. And uh, I remember when I walked to the, you were like, you did good. And back then you used to always wear this like one leather jacket. <laughs> he only had like one black leather That's jacket. Right. He like you wore it to everything. <laughs> <laughs> He's like Bellamy, you killed, you killed, man. I'm so proud of you. So I come around and the lady literally gives me a card um from MTV and I was like, Oh she's like, Do you have a manager? And I was like, Yeah. I didn't even have a manager, so I lied. So I was like, Yeah, I got a manager. And uh so she said, well, give me a call on Monday or whatever, and we want you to come in for a screen test, right? So I had my my homeboy call and act like he was my real manager. Hey, this is uh, Bill Bellamy Entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then they were serious. I said, oh, my God, and I got the job. So I always give you props for that because – you you definitely made that opportunity for me, so it was, was awesome. It's weird. It's like it's, you know, when you do things, and that's part of this podcast. Changed my life, by the way. Changed my life. Well, it changed my life because I'll tell you how it changed my life. Because it let me know that I could do it. You know, on my side, it let me know that I could sell somebody, that I could engage somebody, that I could that I could do something for an artist. And I think one of the greatest things about this podcast for me, and and I, it's weird sitting across from you because you're the first person I've had on that's an on-camera talent, but you're also somebody who I represent. Right. And so now I represent you. I've only represented you for two years, and you were always represented by other people, and I never had a chance to, to work with you. But when we do something together, it's an incredible joy when when you have a goal and you come to me with a goal and with my talent and your talent it happens right the thing that's so exciting about the podcast is it's like when you can reach in and and the podcast i've been on over two million people have listened to them and and so when you can reach two million people and help them change their life like the little thing that i perceived it seemed like a little thing at the time huge though and but it was only huge because 
it could have been nothing had you gone on the air like many VJs that went on the air and didn't move the needle and they were shit canned after like one week, 13 weeks, and then it wouldn't have moved the needle. The reason why it moved the needle is because you did it. And I want you to share with the audience because I think it's fascinating because at the time, in my mind for you, it was all instinct because you were a comic working at the Peppermint Lounge, which for those of you who don't know, and Bill's going to describe the Peppermint Lounge, this was a club that was like, if you think Showtime at the Apollo is cruel to comedians, nothing compared to that. And he cut his teeth there. So firstly, explain what it was like as a performer performing at the Peppermint Lounge, which was run by a guy named Bob Sumner, who eventually got hooked up with Stan Lathan and and Russell Simmons and Def Jam. But explain what the Peppermint Lounge was like, where it was, Uh, and how you started to get into comedy and how you ended up there. Because I I think it's important for people to know, like, what was happening with you before the idea of comedy came into your head and that journey that got you to those first rooms at the Peppermint. All right, well, I'll I'll speed the story up. When I was in... um in college, I was at Rutgers University. I was a tremendous fan of comedy. Didn't know how comedians talk for hours and how to write a joke, but I knew I was a fan. So I used to always watch people, watch Saturday Night Live. I watched Stand Up with Robin Williams, watch Eddie. I'd watch Bill, Richard Pryor, and I was just trying to figure out, I want to do that as a fan. When I was in college, they had like a you know, where they have a open mic night or a talent night where you could either host it or you could try to do stand-up. So at first what I would do is I would be a host. So then I, I could do a couple of jokes, and if they bomb, I'm still the host. So I don't get thrown out, you know what I mean? So when I was on stage, I always felt like at, at peace. You know, I felt like this is sort of like what I really like to do as, as a hobby. Every time I got an opportunity to to be a comic or do a host, I kept hosting. And then next thing you know, I said, I want to be a stand-up. So I hosted like a, I mean, I, I did performed at a, uh, what they would call like a step show at my school. Huge, three, 4,000 people. The dude in front of me ate it. This one I knew I was ready. He ate it. They threw pennies at this dude. I never forget. <laughs> they threw pennies. He was like, ping, 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 ping. <laughs> and they were like, you're next, kid. Oh, my God. I said, what can I do? I said, this is what I have to do. I said, I got to come out with a good song. And I hope so, these guys don't have any So I told the DJ, I said, put on Eric B. Rakim, How Can I Move the Crowd? It was like the perfect song for what I needed because it got everybody attention off the guy that got bombed. The music was crazy. And that song was basically like a, it was a metaphor for what I was about to do. So I'll go out there, i kill it. And everybody's like, oh, Bill Bellamy's so funny. I was like, oh my God, I am funny. So then everybody on the campus starts saying I was a comedian. How many numbers from girls did you get that night? Uh, pretty, 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 uh, a couple. I guess okay, a couple. Just a couple. Right? Couple, couple. So anyway, so now I'm on campus. I'm the campus comedian. Everyone's like, Bill Bellamy's the funny dude. So now I'm like, okay, I got to keep this thing going. So I graduate. I do a lot of little local stuff. But when I graduate, what you don't understand is when you live in New Jersey, all the real clubs were in New York City. And that's how I met you. So what I would do is I would just drive to the city, double park my car, have somebody watch my car, run, do your do your spot there, run uptown, do uh, Catch a Rising Star, or run to do a, improv or whatever they had at the time, 
and I come back to New Jersey and didn't have anywhere to work out. So we were like, man, we need a club in New Jersey, man. We have nothing. So pretty much Bob Sumner and myself and another cat at the time was like, where could we find a club that we could work out? So we got the Peppermint going. The Peppermint was a real hood club, though. It was just like hood hood where it was by hood i mean it was an urban club it was edgy club you had to be really raw in there they didn't want any cupcake mtv jokes and this is what's weird about this <laughs> they uh, wanted the raw for those in the audience is that bill was never a raw comedian yeah. bill was always like at most pg-13 yeah. He was family friendly. Comedy. But I was I was silly enough to get through these guys. They were they were like so on me like tigers on a piece of meat. They and plus I was a Jersey boy, so they kind of had the home team advantage. But they kept me very very honest every week. You know I couldn't use the same jokes. I had to always come in there fresh. And what exploded for me and actually prepared me for MTV was that I was in the comedy club every week. You know working on a new bit, working out this, fixing that, you know, recording myself and stuff like that. And if 10 people went on at the Peppermint Lounge in a night with a host, oh my god. How many of those 10 would bomb honestly, on average and get booed honestly, off the stage? I would say 6 got booed. 6 got booed off the stage. It was And incredible... I mean boo boo like booed all the way to your car like boo boo boo. boo! <laughs> They boo you in the back of your head, like get you inside your car. While being hit you know by pennies. You, you know what we used to do that you just reminded me, which to be so funny. It's kind of cruel, but I was a host and I really didn't give a fuck at the time. It's like whenever you bombed, we used to always give out maps. So <laughs> wherever you live, we tell you how to get home. It used to be <laughs> so funny. And like we'd map out like the whole audience to help. No, no, no. Tell them to get on 95, get down to 17, go through somebody's yard, get back home. <laughs> we, and we had comics coming from Philly, D.C., now tell, New York. Now tell me a comedian who, before we get on with your story here, uh. tell me a comedian who <laughs> went on, who you saw have his head handed to him came back again another week, might have gotten beat up again, but eventually over time you saw him persevere, win, and become a household name comedian. Oh, Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. And I wanted to talk about that. I was hoping you were going to mention <laughs> it because I remember I managed Dave oh, and he would say he used to, to get crushed in He there. would say to me, Barry, I have to go to this club and I have to work at this club. I said, Dave, I don't think you ready for this. You man. should go to this club. It's not that kind of club. He says, no, Barry, I need to be respected. I'm tired of, of doing these, uh, you know, audiences here. I need to show that I can do these yeah. rooms. And it was very important for him to, to do well to in the black clubs. Because this is a real 100% black club. So talk and, about his uh, performances Dave, there. Dave was like 17, maybe 16, 17. I know he was young. He didn't have a car. And he would come there. It was like, man, this is crazy. <laughs> uh, they're animals. <laughs> they're savages. <laughs> this is... This is worse than Africa. <laughs> How do you host this? This is a, this is a debacle. <laughs> say, Dave, just go in there, man. How many Dave times was before he got it going? It was at least three. Three. But because, he kept coming back. But Dave never gave up, man. He was just like, man, this is crazy. These guys, are, they're just, they, they leave their jobs to boo you. <laughs> 
You can just tell they just they just in, just love booing. So <laughs> I remember, man. God, I remember uh, those conversations. I remember man. one time Dave got booed so bad he didn't have no ride. You gave him a map, and, and to this day he always remembers it because I gave him a ride. Now cut to who knew that Dave Chappelle was going to flip that, flip the whole situation come back around because he was coming up in the clubs with me and we were both you know swinging out there every night i'd see dave at, like once or twice a week whenever i was in the city and he'd come to new jersey and he's one of the kind of comics that i i would love to you know once i see him again and say i'm just so proud of you because you know what it does take you know defeat sometime you know to get to the crown you know what i mean you every show is not going to be good and and that club made me a really solid comedian before i got on tv and it taught me how to deal with adversity because you know people were getting booed or this guy is you know tanking and this guy didn't show up you got to stretch you know so it was a great place to to exercise your muscle yeah there's nothing like when i used to host shows and there's the anxiety of of hosting a show. You don't yeah. think it's there's anxiety. And maybe Bill doesn't remember these times, but there are shows that you would do as a host and you didn't know. You know, you're you're you had to go on without the next comic being there. Yes. And you don't you, you and they're supposedly on the way and you don't know when they're going to come. And those were the most anxious times because you're stretching. <laughs> and just to let you know about what Bill's saying with the perseverance and, and the getting knocked down. I started representing Dave Chappelle, 17 or 18, and he went to the Washington, D.C. Performing Arts High School with a guy named Taro. They moved to New York mm -hmm. to get an apartment, $1,200 a month. They signed the lease on the apartment. The next day, Taro goes on an audition, gets a gig for a traveling Broadway show 52 weeks across the country. He's got to leave the next week, and he's gone. And Dave, is, he's 17 or 18, and he's got a $1,200 apartment he's got to make work. He has no work, no money. Yes, but he figures out a way to persevere, and, and, and it works out. And it's interesting that you guys started the same way. So yeah. so take me through the uh, MTV. So, so now the MTV thing happens, and, and you, you go to the screen test. Tell our audience what a screen test is like, who's there, how many people are there, what are you feeling at the time? Do you think oh, when you're man. going in, I'm going to get this, or are you thinking this is just a good well, experience? You well, don't, you don't know what to expect because I had never had a screen test before, and you have like a, a lot of producers there, people, uh, network people and stuff like that. And what they were wanted to know is if I could read teleprompter. And tell the audience what and a, a teleprompter, teleprompter is. And a teleprompter is pretty much like a camera, but it has all the words that you are to read inside of it. So when you're looking through it, people at home don't realize it, but you're looking at the words are scrolling on the screen and you're looking directly into the eyes of the people at home, right? So <clears throat> I said at the time I wasn't good at, you know, teleprompter because I never, you know, um, seen it scroll like that. So I said, let me read the copy because I'm one of the things that I can do very well, if I read something once, I got it in my head. I got very good memory like that. I didn't want to look like I was reading. I said, I just want to talk to the people. So I did mine like that. And what they liked about it, it was more natural. 
The only knock that I had, they said, you use your hands too much. She's like, your hands are all over the place. You got to bring your hands down because it's blocking the screen and you're doing all this stuff. But I was like, that's from comedy. We use our hands. We got one hand extended, whatever. So then I got a 13-week run. Okay, so you got the 13-week yeah, run. They said they wanted me to come back for 13 weeks. They were going to so, try me out. So they try you out. Yeah. Take us through your first day, your first week there. You've never done anything mm-hmm. in your life. You literally have been on stage maybe, if I'm not a mistaken, year or two. a hundred times at best, maybe 70 times not, Never over 20 minutes. Yeah. Ever. And so you have no experience. As a stand-up, you, you, I don't think you've made any money on no. any gig except for the Peppermint Lounge where you had a door deal. Right. So you've never, you're essentially an open mic comedian. Yes. And I, you go on at this club, you get the gig, then you screen test. You've never screen tested. You've never read teleprompter. Right. And that's why I said certain people have this instinct thing that takes over. So now you have to walk on a sound stage yes. and, and basically. With all these people that, you know, are looking to see what you have, your, your, your heart's beating, you, you know, your swams, your palms are sweaty and you're just like, please God, let me, you know, be able to, you know, do what I'm destined to do. And one of the things that I had in my back pocket, the confidence was one thing, but the other thing was like, I love music. So it wasn't that hard for me to talk about music because I love music. So we we're talking about, you know, bands and uh, hip hop and Blind Melon and Diddy and, you know, Madonna. So I'm like, oh, that's easy. So once I got the music down, I exploded off the MTV because I was a student of the music. So now that I know the music, I don't have to read a teleprompter. I'm telling you what I know. That was the difference with me. I I studied the music. So whether you put it in the screen or not, I can look at it, but I don't need it. So I'm sitting there talking 20 minutes about Blind Melon. Now this is what's what's also fascinating is, so if you're an artist in this business and you get your first gig, you don't know, you don't understand the ramifications. You're in the studio, you're in front of the camera, it's going on television, uh, the country's watching, but you don't know what the impact's going to be. You have no idea until you walk down the street that first week. Yes. And why don't you tell everybody what happened? Well, I didn't have cable at the time that MTV (laughs) on, so I never could watch myself for the first like six to seven months or whatever it was because MTV wasn't in my area in New Jersey yet. So I didn't have MTV, we didn't have HBO at that time. So this is when I knew I was famous. I went to Minneapolis, I never forget this. I went to Minneapolis, I was at the Mall of Americas in Foot Locker. I'd never been in Minneapolis before, so no one knows me in Minneapolis. I am buying sneakers. There's about 300 people outside of Foot Locker, and it started like like with 10 people, then 20 people, and they all were whispering, and I'm like, Somebody is in here. (laughs) (laughs) And whenever I look, they look, they run away and they whisper and come back and they just kept traveling. And then by, 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 by 25 minutes later, the half of the goddamn mall is outside of Foot Locker. And one person walks up to me and they go, are you Bill Bellamy? (laughs) I'm like, how you know me? (laughs) You're on MTV. Oh my God, it's him. <laughs> so I'm taking pictures and signing autographs, and I was like, "Oh my God, I'm famous!" Like I, 
I'd never been famous. Like you, that's what famous people do. You go to somewhere and everybody knows who you are. And that's how I, that was my first moment of like, oh my God, TV is powerful. And that's when you knew that you were never looking back. Oh, I knew I was in the game. I mean, you just got to imagine this is like 92, 91 and music is exploding. Like MTV is probably what everyone is watching when they come home. It was that big. Like when you came home from high school, grammar school, or college, you had to watch MTV. We had like, every artist. Like right now, MTV, probably the highest rated show is, you know, or the average might be one million people for a show. When Bill Bellamy was VJing, I mean, there were tens, 20 million people watching me watching every day. Every day. And so talk about some of the early interviews you did or the because I, I could spend like 90 minutes on this alone and I, I we can't but okay. I want you to tell the audience you know two or three or four of the most amazing wow. interview stories that happened to you as a young VJ that you wow. would never believe no one would ever believe okay I got to tell you this story first when I got there right they told me I was pretty much going to be um um in studio VJ, you know, you're young, you know, we got to see what you could do. You're pretty much only going to do MTV jams, which was pretty much hip hop and R&B. I get there and I start interviewing people and I start making people laugh and getting these great interviews. And, and next thing you know, I'm going to the top 20 countdown. That's prime time. And now I'm interviewing not only hip hop or urban acts, I'm interviewing Kurt Cobain. You know, I'm interviewing uh, Hootie and the Blowfish. I'm interviewing Madonna, Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson. So now it's crazy. So now I'm like the black Casey Kasem or right now what Ryan Seacrest was doing, I was doing in the 90s pretty much where, you know, just interviewing all the big stars. And one of my favorite, favorite interviews, I would say that just blew my mind was the Janet Jackson interview because... I never thought that I would ever be in the same room with her. Well, let's let's go back a little bit okay. because before the Janet Jackson thing took place, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, you got the call to do one of the most amazing things that you could ever imagine. The call that said you're interviewing Michael Jackson. Oh, okay. So oh, that, even, that that's, that's crazy. That's the start of that's it. That's crazy. Okay. So talk about that. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> oh, wow. The Michael Jackson phone call was nuts. Um, I don't know. At this time, I'm probably, you know, just honestly, I'm the number one VJ on the channel and things are going really, really well. All the music execs are, you know, treat me like I'm the dude or whatever. And I get a call from Sony. And uh, at the time, Tommy Mottola is running. He's the head of Sony at the time, and it is been, it, this is how the conversation was. It has been requested that from Michael Jackson himself that you are going to do the interview for his next project. I was like, hold on. I was like, ah, oh, no, I'm terrific. Because right? what, what you don't realize when tripping. you are an artist that's on television, you don't understand that anybody can be watching at yeah. any time. So he was a fan of me, right? So Mike is like, 
Um, I love what you do. You make me laugh, and you're so crazy. And um, I, 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 I just love your energy. You love the music, I can tell. And I get this interview now. This is the special thing about the Michael Jackson interview. Outside of sitting down and talking with him face-to-face -face like we're doing, it was the first time in music history that a video premiered on every network at the exact same time. It was simulcast on every network. This is the history. It's never been done before. This was the history. It uh, was the history. It was the history album. I introduced this video to the world. So before you saw this video, you saw me standing in Times Square. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. And I got, I'm dressed really nice. Of course I'm you dressed are. dressed up. The pattern continues. The pattern continues. I'm dressed really, really nice. What's Everything that, that I was wearing, I had to take back. But I had to look nice for Michael. That's right. And um, I introduced that video. And that was a game changer. It actually, interviewing Michael Jackson, took my... Um, my credibility level with my interviews and my exposure to another level that I had never, I could never imagine. Like I didn't realize that I knew he was big, but like, man, it was another level at the time. I don't ever remember that happening ever since or mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I think I'd love you to tell before we get into the Janet Jackson thing is if you are somebody out there in any profession, it's mm -hmm. all about the preparation and, and doing everything you can to prepare for, whatever it is you're going to do so you can succeed with the knowledge that somebody can always throw you a curveball and give you something to do or throw something at you that has nothing to do with what you prepared for. Oh, wow. And as the story goes, and Bill will tell it, Bill, when he knew he was doing this interview with Michael Jackson, I mean, he probably pulled three all-nighters, writing everything out. He had everything on these index cards. Yeah. I got all my <laughs> questions ready. Everything's in order with the one, the two, the three. Everything's all set. And he is ready and he is prepared and he's there early. And Michael Jackson comes in with his security people and they take Bill aside. And oh, what man. happens? They take me aside and they go, he's not answering all those questions. <laughs> he's answering these. And I was devastated. They handed him they handed questions the, they handed that were not question. even his questions. No, because I had... As a fan, I was trying to ask the questions that I think every person would want to know, like, you know, the real fans. So I had all these great questions and stuff like that that I thought were great, and they just killed that whole dream. And they gave me the questions to ask, and I was like, it was nothing I could do about it. And it was in the moment, and I was just like, okay, well, okay, we're going to make the best of his questions. And, and and that's exactly what happened. And that was like something I'd never experienced before. I was like, wow, I, I thought it was, it was, I was in fairy tale land, you know, where I thought it was always like, you know, the real artists, you know, the real fans, you get to do this. And sometimes, no, it's about what they want, you know, the politics of the game. That's right. And so this leads up to the Janet Jackson uh, yeah. interview. Now, how did that come about? Oh, here we go. So I never forget this. I'm on the phone. I'm talking to this female, and at the time, you know, just vibing with her. And I get a, you know, a click on the other line. So I call over, and you know, when there was call waiting, when it was call waiting, we still have call waiting. So they say, uh, "Hi." I'm like, "Hello, who's this?" She's like, "Hi, it's Jen." I'm like, "Who? What? Who's this?" It's Jen. So I I hung up. Click. 
<laughs> so I go back to this girl I'm talking to. I was like, some people playing games, my bad. So we still talking. Boop, beeps again. Now it's a guy voice, right? It's uh, Renee at the time. Renee's like, is this Bill Bellamy? I said, yes. He was like, do you know who you just hung up on? I was like, nah, who is this? He's like, this is Renee Elizondo, and you just hung up on Janet Jackson. <laughs> I was like, get the fuck out of here, right? I was like, Janet, Janet? Like Janet Jackson? So she gets on the phone. She says, Bill, did you really hang up? I was like, I thought you was bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so she says, um, we love you so much, and I have an opportunity for you. She was like, um, one of the artists that was opening up for her fell out, and she was like, we would want you to come out and do 10 Cities with us. So I said, hell yeah. And um, 10 I, Cities in... Sold uh, out arenas. Arenas. In arenas. Folks, not theaters. Arenas. Not small theaters. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Not universal amphitheater kind of venues. Arenas. 15 to 20,000 yes. seat arenas. My first date with her was in Worcester. Worcester, Massachusetts Worcester at, Worcester? The, at the Centrum. Worcester. W Worcester. But I think what's even more uh, impressive to know for uh, the people who... Uh, we're audience. listening millions. Hello, everybody. It's the fact that you got the call from Janet Jackson. Yes. Because she saw your interview with Michael Jackson. Yes. Her brother. Her brother. And she said, basically, in a sense, I never saw him interviewed like that. That was wonderful. And what you neglected to say before she offered you the tour was, I want you to interview me. Yeah. And, and talk about that interview. Well, that was literally one of the best uh, interviews of my life um, because at this time where Beyonce is right now, that's where Janet Jackson was in 92, 93. She was on fire and she was the most beautiful, sexiest thing moving. She was the first chick I ever seen with a belly piercing. Let's be honest. That wasn't out yet. Chicks wasn't, chicks, everybody got a little diamond in their belly now, but back then it was special. She um was there a mal was there a wardrobe malfunction when you were uh, interviewing her? Oh, everything was malfunctioning <laughs> for me. I think everything was functioning for you at the time. When I was on the set of her video, if and um, if I was your girlfriend, what things I do to you? She had probably pound for pound the hottest backup dancers. And this is the funniest thing about this video. Go to YouTube, put in Bill Bellamy, Janet Jackson interview. You will see me about to faint because we're standing there talking and she lays her head on my chest and I'm about to black out because it was not scripted. It was just one of those moments where I'm like, oh, my God. And I was saying to myself, Bill, don't don't faint. Just chill. Get some air in your lungs. Right. And then this is what really threw me off. She started like like messing with my nipple, and I like that. So she was doing that, and it was kind of turning me on. I was like, "We got to go to commercial because <laughs> I'm gonna need some new slacks." <laughs> but uh, it was she. She was so cool, and uh, it's a, it was it's one of those interviews where everyone can tell I was a fan as well, and that uh, I remember it was a dream moment. Video when it was I a dream moment. I I I thought <laughs> I crazy. thought I remember her. Doing something with your ear. Yeah, she put her tongue in my ear. I swear to God. Oh and I was God. just like, she better, somebody better get off me. 
Because I will. I will address this issue. <laughs> I will address this issue. She keep pushing the envelope here. So then you go out and you're doing arenas. You're mm. working arenas as a stand-up comic. Most yeah. people don't understand. That's crazy. That there were very few people, that comedians, who ever performed an arena successfully. Yeah. And opening up for a music act is one of the most difficult things in the world because no one gives a shit about you. Yeah. You are barbed wire. You are fodder right. going out. People are taking their seats, getting their food. Mm. They're just waiting for Janet. They don't care about who's opening, no matter how big a star you are. But oh no, you know, Bill Bellamy <laughs> didn't allow that to happen. No, just like the Peppermint no. Lounge was great training ground. Well, it, it prepared me for that moment. And I mean, and honestly, at this time, one of the things that I think really worked in my favor was that I was very popular at, on MTV. So when they introduced me, and you see my face on the jumbotron or whatever, people were like really excited about me at the time, and that was kind of nice because you know I was in cities like you know Worcester that I'd never been before, and we'd go, we did uh, New York together, we did Philly, DC, and it was like places I'd never been. Now you're going, people are going, hey Bill, it was it was just dope, and um. And I had only, I had my 20 minutes and I killed them. You know, I had fun with the crowd. I got the energy up. And then my favorite part was introducing Janet Jackson. Cause like you could tell the difference between where my stardom is and where hers was at the time. Like they're laughing, they're having a good time. But when I would say, ladies and gentlemen, are you ready? You just see the place just rev like to this level of like, oh my God. And I would start shrinking. And then she'd come out the ground and you see, you see like what a superstar is. And it just made me realize like, wow, it's another level, level to this game of entertainment because she's a superstar. I'm like a young little star that twinkle, I'm a little twinkle, but she is like a galaxy compared to where I was at the time. And it was just amazing, man. It was just like, I, I mean, just thinking about it now, I'm glad you asked me because I was just like, what an opportunity. Again, with the way relationships work right. and the way work begets work if you do great work, your relationship with Bob Sumner from the Peppermint Lounge, which prepared you for the arenas, mm -hmm. now he hooks up with Russell Simmons and Deaf Stan Comedy Latham, Jam. and they create a show called the Deaf Comedy Jam, and they sell it to HBO, and... The first episode is Martin Lawrence, Bernie Back, Adele, Adele Givens, and Bill Bellamy. And Bill Bellamy. Mm -hmm. Take me through that first experience of the first Def Jam. Um, I was there, by the way, mm -hmm. and I'll never forget it. And if I'm not mistaken, you actually closed the show, but in the airing, they, they put, put you first. first. And yeah. let me tell you why they do that uh, for everybody in the audience. If you're wondering sometimes when you're watching a comedy show on television and why sometimes the guy who's the headliner goes on first is because they want to keep the ratings. They want to keep everything. It's like on a talk show. The big guest comes out first, then the next guest, and the next guest. Sometimes they'll shield somebody in the middle that's not as big a guest to sort of wait and have a bigger one at the end, but normally the big guy goes first. Right. And so I want you to take our audience from the night before when you wanted to try out a bit that you had never done before. 
at the Uptown Comedy Club in Harlem. And what led you to that first Def Jam and tell us about it and take us through the whole experience? This is is purely fate. I, I I just told this story to Andre Brown, who at the time owned the Uptown Comedy Club, which was in Harlem. I had on a whim, I wrote a joke on a napkin at work. I still had a day job. <clears throat> at this time, and um, I'd wrote a joke on a napkin, and it was in my hand. And um, I said, "I'm gonna go to New York tonight and do this joke on stage." It's a concept I had in my head. Now I get to the Uptown Comedy Club in Harlem. Just close your eyes and imagine packed room, very, very African American audience, guys, girls. I didn't know the people against the wall or the back were like big time HBO producer people at the time. I just knew there was some some interesting um, white people in the background. And um, <laughs> and I'm a young comic. I go around the back. Charlie Burnett, if you don't know anything about comedy, he was a street comic at the time who was doing comedy in a club. He was literally ripping the nails out the wall, killing everybody laughing. This guy's probably one of pound for pound one of the funniest people I've ever seen do stand up. And we've talked about him here on the podcast and there's no one there was, no, you, you, it was Charlie crazy. you you no one wanted to follow Charlie Barnett. No one. Nobody. It's and just crazy. It's just they he never used a microphone. He would be like putting a gorilla a gorilla in a in a one bedroom apartment and you could tell him he could just smash everything. That's how powerful he was. Um and it, on stage, he was so funny and just, he, he caused pandemonium, right? But this is, uh, this is the thing about Bill at the time that I always found so amazing about him. Bill, he was almost like oblivious to anything. Just nothing affected him. <laughs> I wasn't caring. He care. just didn't even understand that there was somebody on a stage that would could could hurt him or could damage his chances. or And so he... He would tell uh, this guy, Andre, Yeah, he'd say, look, you know, I just want to do five minutes, try out a bit. Uh, I'll just go on after Charlie. And and the guy's like, uh, Bill, uh, you, you you don't want to Not go on that. after Charlie. There's no way. I, I, I never forget this because I was really, really upset. I'm standing there waiting, right? And Charlie is coming around to his closing bit. And Andre comes back behind the curtain and he says, Bill, you know what I think? You should probably go on next week. Uh... I mean, listen to this. This is crazy. Uh, I wouldn't put you in that situation. You know, you're my man, uh, but Charlie's destroying right now. So we're going to close out the show with Charlie. I said, listen, man, I'm like, look, dude, I've been waiting here for 20 minutes for him to finish. My car's double parked outside. I am. I got to do it. I said, just let me go on stage. He's like, Bill, you don't want to. I said, I got this bit, man. I'm telling you, I think it's going to kill. Just let me do this bit. And for those of you, I mean, there's no, in any circumstances, 99, <laughs> 999 out of a thousand times, if you go on for five minutes after any headliner, there you don't even have a chance to do well. I mean, there's not even a, I mean, there's- Yeah, it's there, really hard. It's almost impossible, unless you're a guitar comic or a <laughs> prop comic or something. But you have no fear. And well, tell, I knew tell I the had, audience what happened. What happened was I knew I had like a haymaker in my pocket. And by that I mean I knew I had one or two jokes that I knew were, were funny already. I said, once I get him with the one-two punch, 
I'm going to say the haymaker for the third spot. And that was the joke I wrote called Booty Call. And I said, I'm going to, I know this, it just felt right. I said, I'm going to do this on my third spot. So I did my jabs. They got them. I got them on my side. And then here comes the booty call. When I tell you, when I started this joke, going into this joke, the room erupted with laughter, right? Just on the same level as Charlie Burnett. I just matched it with this joke. When I closed out this joke, booty call, the whole place was stomping. And back in the day, the Uptown, they, they wouldn't stand up and give you a standing ovation. They stomped their feet. So it sounds like thunder. They're just like, whoa. And, and, and Kevin and everybody was like, oh, my God. What the hell is that booty call? That's, that shit is crazy, right? <laughs> Cut to Kevin goes, I didn't think you could do it. But th what the fuck is that booty call thing? Comes, come, I come around the corner. All the people that's against the back wall is all the HBO people. They're with Russell Simmons. Russell Simmons comes up to me and he goes, hi, I'm Russell Simmons. And uh, <laughs> I just want to say that uh, that was an incredible joke. Incredible joke. Please do that. I have a new show. It's going to be called Def Comedy Jam. It's about urban comics. It's about being honest. It's about you doing your thing. And that booty call, you have got to do that. That's phenomenal. <laughs> I, I'm tripping, right? And cut to, I had to ask somebody who's Russell Simmons because I didn't know who he was. <laughs> I was like, this is guy that was the Russell Simmons because he had a Def Jam jacket on. And I heard about Def Jam, but at the time I wasn't really up on it. He's like, yo, that's Russ. That's Russell Simmons. You know how big that is? He came up to you. Cut to, now I'm on Def Jam. Okay? I know I got my haymaker on me. I said, when I put this joke on television, I'm out of here. I already knew what was going to happen. I said, when I do this joke on TV, it's, a, it's lights out. On the show taping, I go last. There is three, literally three standing ovations in front of me. Because you got to understand, the, yeah. they put, they had Martin Lawrence hosting, and yes. he was at the top of his game. Fire. He was high energy, and yes. he was killing. And he would, people were like, literally, you do a joke, and people would be getting up and high fiving each other and running back and yeah. forth through the hallway. <laughs> it was crazy. And then like the, a church. It was unbelievable, and the, and, the, and and the first comic was Bernie Mac, oh and 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 he, he had that famous bit, "I ain't scared of you, motherfuckers." Yeah, and and, and, and then, it, it was crazy. It was insane. He gets a standing ovation. Then Adele Givens goes on, and she does something, and I to this day I don't know if it was a plant in the audience or not. Probably one of the best female jokes I've ever seen performed. In my life. But I'll never forget a guy <laughs> yells out to her after some Something joke. about her lips. So, you know, I love your lips. Blow me. And she paused and she looked at him and said, <laughs> blowing you would be like throwing a whale a Tic Tac. <laughs> <laughs> the place went I've never crazy. seen anything like it. People oh stood God. up oh dancing God. around. It was like literally like 45 seconds it standing ovation. In the middle the of a set, moment. I, I never seen. I ne it, it was it was it was like the leading joke on a promo. Yeah, so and Bill would be like giving a whale a tic tac. Oh my god! And Bill is in the wings waiting to go on. And is Bill nervous? Yes. Is Bill upset? I'm, 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 I'm is nervous. Bill frustrated? Because the heat is. Let me tell you, <laughs> the heat on that show was beyond anything that you could imagine. Martin was funny. The energy was just great for for a launch show. 
Once again, I said, I know I got my haymaker on me. I got my haymaker with me. This booty call thing is going to crush him. When I hit him, I hit him. I stuck to the script the way I did it at Uptown. I had my one, two, three punch, and I hit him with the booty call. When we got into the, it wasn't even 30 seconds in when I said, fellas, is that or is that not a booty call? Can you help me? Pandemonium. That's when I know insanity. we go. It's insanity. Ah! People falling all over the place. I mean, people again, like it was like the Adele Givens thing. I'm like, oh my God. It's just, it was. And yo, and, and the thing about it is, you know, it's so simple. It's not that like, it's just a simple two words put together that describes everything. And when it came to me, I was just thinking about like, yo, when a girl come out your crib, you know what I'm saying, on a Friday night, that's a booty call. Because <gasps> you calling for the booty, but nobody ever put it together. But when you put it together, it, it, it's cute, but it's funny, and it says everything that you're doing. Cut to, it becomes one of the signature jokes of my career that people always remember, and it's like a trip. Like, I didn't know it was ever going to last like that. And it's a signature expression to this day, and yeah. I don't know of any other comedian in the <laughs> world that has coined a phrase that's in our vernacular. Yeah, this is in there. I should have just, just did something, trademarked that. That's incredible. And how much booty money I can And have? this is what's even <laughs> this Just is booty checks. This is what's even more fascinating about <laughs> that break for you. Because people think uh making it in any business is about making money, mm -hmm. but respect outlasts cash. And the amount of money that Bill Bellamy made for HBO Def Jam was under a thousand dollars. Yeah. And we, it was we, a buyout. And it aired a bazillion times. Yeah. It went to DVD. They made millions and millions of dollars. Billions, yeah. And Bill Bellamy made $979.50. Yeah, but what I, what I got out of it was, was way more. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was just one of those things. I'm a part of a generation of comics that I feel will never be duplicated. You know, I felt like, you know, my class of comics we were like the all-stars, you know, where you have the best basketball players ever together, like the dream team. I mean, when you go from Dave Chappelle to Chris Rock to Steve Harvey to Bernie Mac, you know, to, to Chris Tucker to Martin Lawrence, I mean, Cedric, DL. I mean, you just keep going. you just like, wow, all those guys were on that show, and they were all hilarious. Jamie Foxx, you know. So, One of my favorite things that Steve Harvey ever said, I, I brought him in for uh, uh, this uh, seminar for this comedy festival at the Boston Comedy Club, and the place was packed with all black comedians. And he said, I'm looking out at all of you, and all of you disgust me. You know why you disgust me? Because all you're trying to do is get your seven minutes together so you can get a development deal on television. You know what you guys are? You guys are comics. I'm a comedian. Right. I go on stage every night and all I want to do is be the best comedian in the world and then they'll come and find me for a sitcom. All I care about hearing every day or every night is one phrase. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Steve Harvey. Oh, that's hot. Incredible, that's hot. right? That's hot. That's so hot. then Def Jam takes off and movies start calling. Mm-hmm. How does that come about? And tell me about that experience going from MTV now to Def Jam. So you're the first African-American to be the number one VJ. I was the man. On MTV. <laughs> the first comic, 
really uh, one of the first comics on Def Jam, mm-hmm. groundbreaking show. Yes. And now you're in a situation where you're getting the call for feature films. Yeah, I um also and that was the, the first plan. comedian at the time that was working arenas for a major a major musical act. And now the movies are calling. Tell me about the first movie you did. Uh, and, uh, and, and the first movie that I did um, when I got to MTV was a small movie at the time with um, Ted Demi, and it was called the late Who, Ted Demi. The late, t- late Ted Demi. Um, Ed Lover and Dr. Dre had a movie. They were actually, you know, doing good things at the time, and they uh, cast me and Bernie Mac. And who's the man? And we both played barbers that were like the worst barbers in the world but we were really really funny and again it's about your work and Mm -hmm. work begets work they saw you on Def Jam and next thing you know these guys would be great if you hadn't done Def Jam two other people would have been it would have been the barbers so me and Bernie and that's how Bernie and I became you know like brothers um, the late Bernie Mac and you know he stayed um, at my house and slept on the floor and we you know we went to new york and we sat in the cold to do that movie and it bonded us you know at that time because we were like yo we're in the movie business now we're in film like you know to be a comic to be in a movie was like a jump like that's crazy you know you see the directors you see other actors like oh my god and what's crazy is you're in his first movie yes. and he's in your first movie. absolutely and unbelievable uh, i go from that movie to doing love jones with lorenz tate and me still along. a great friend of yours. He's my best friend to this day. I do um, I do that movie with him, with um, Isaiah Washington, and um, the director was Ted Witcher. We did this cool little independent film, and it's a cult movie now. I, I had no idea. I just was like, I want to be funny. But then you did something that sort of was a play on Booty Call. Yeah. That really, really yeah. solidified things. Talk about that. So then I got, um, this is the craziest thing that most people don't know. Originally, there was the offer for how to be a player was out to Chris Tucker. And because Chris Tucker was on Def Jam, he's on fire. We're all born fire at the same time. And I had a meeting with Brett Ratner. And he was like, Bill, listen. Brett Ratner is a Brett Ratner, famous director who's uh, young. He was young, young director at the time. He was supposed to direct it. It was going to be Brett. It was going to be Chris. And then Brett was like, look, um, I think Chris is going to do this movie called Money Talks. And I'm going to do this movie with you. And Chris is going to go do that. But what ended up happening is somehow Brett jumps off that movie, goes over to do Money Talks with Chris Tucker. I come in, I get another director, I get How to Be a Player. So he goes this way, I go that way, I get How to Be a Player, which at this time was supposed to be, the way they pitched the movie to me is like a urban Ferris Bueller, where you got this guy who's got all these chicks, we're gonna look at the camera, you're gonna teach guys how to get all these women. <laughs> I said, perfect. I know how to do that. So um, we do this movie, and my life changes to another level because now that's my first lead. I'm the lead in the movie. So I'm like, oh, my God, that's that's a whole nother vibe. And I actually, just so you know, I did all my um, sex scenes um, in the movie. Myself, no stunt double. 
Really? Yeah, I was there for that. <laughs> <laughs> that that was. Did a, you get excited on the set the when you were doing the love this, scene? This is the thing that really. He didn't most guys, question. I'm going to answer it for you. Most guys, when you, we watch movies and girls, when you watch movies, you go, okay, the love scenes are pretty steamy. And you're like, oh my God, would I do that like that? Here's the thing that you don't realize. When you're doing a movie, there's like 40 people in the room. It's very difficult to get comfortable. So it, you have to kind of have like chemistry and you guys have to just like block out everybody. And if you do really lock in, you do get excited. I did. <laughs> now, what are you wearing nice. under the sheets? You just have on like some, like basically like a brief, but they're so thin. And what was she wearing under the sheets? Um, the, most of them were wearing nothing. You know, nothing. So, I mean, that's just real ass right there. You know, I like, I mean, I thought it was wonderful. It helped me lock in. That's a You know. Tell me about Any Given Sunday. Uh, Any Given Sunday, excuse me, Any Given Sunday was my, was my big, big, big studio film. Um, I got an opportunity to work with all the A-list people at that time. And um, that was Oliver Stone. Um, That happened, uh, I had a meeting with Oliver Stone. Uh, wanted to meet me wanted to see if I was athletic and if you know he uh, he said I looked like Jimmy Sanderson to him he's like you you look like Jimmy you know do you do coke no no. (laughs) (laughs) and uh and I went in and met with Oliver Stone which for me was like mind mind mind-boggling and he brought me to a camp to um with a bunch of actors we went down to USC and we tried out basically for the football aspect of it and I beat out a lot of people to do that. And uh, next thing you know, he flew me down to Miami, and I'm working with uh, with uh, LL Cool J, Jamie Foxx, um, Cameron Diaz, Al Pacino, Aaron Eckhart, oh man, Jim Brown. And so let's keep going one step further uh, with us together, which is a weird thing mm-hmm. because um, now just know. You know, you have, at the, you're not managing me at this time, but you've been knowing me my whole career. So I always, we always pop in and out. I always so. pop in and out, yeah. but I never manage you. I always wanted to represent you, but there was always somebody in your life and I never really uh, got it together, but I always wanted to and I was always in touch with you. And I remember when Last Comic Standing, we had our third year of Last Comic Standing yep. and NBC canceled the show right before the final episode where Alonzo Bowden was announced as the winner. And Jay Moore called me up and said, I quit. I'm done with the show. I'm not doing this anymore. You can tell them to get somebody else. And so the next season, we needed to find another host for Last Comic Standing. And I get that call. (laughs) Well, this is what happened. So what happened is... They went with a host the next year who they perceived would take that time slot to another level, which was Anthony Clark, who had just been on CBS with Yes Dear for seven years, and they thought they could just parlay that right in to get an actor to host. But Anthony was more of a thespian. He wasn't as much of a host, and it wasn't his gig. And it didn't really work. Even though he did a lot of comedy in Boston, he hadn't really done that much comedy since because he was working like 300 episodes of television and made a lot of money. 
So then we met, and I met with Peter Engel, and I said, listen, I think Bill Bellamy is the guy for us. Will you th- can we take a meeting with Bill? Yeah. And again, I'm not managing Bill. Nope. We set up the meeting. I had some steak. And I, I had some that. steak. I had some steak. Met with Peter Engel, and there was no doubt in Peter's mind that Bill was the guy. And here it was again, our relationship. I wasn't representing him. And here he was going into a show that I think he might have done over the two or three, the two seasons. Yeah, back to back. And you must have done like about 35 episodes because you did a lot of episodes back then. Yes, we did. And and those shows were amazing and you were amazing lots on them. Lots of fun and uh, lots of fun. And it was a great opportunity um, for me to host such a high level, you know, middle America type show. You know what I mean? It was just right down the middle. Um, it kind of reminded me of my MTV days in a way. But what I liked about it was comedy driven and it was giving me an opportunity to help, you know, other comics get the exposure that they needed. And that's what I liked about it. And then also what I liked about was being outside with the people. We used to do all those fun like yeah. improv, no script, just go out there and kick it and we always use those those moments. And you're also a guy who's just always crossing over and doing things that other artists were not doing. I mean, you were doing a, it's very hard to find somebody who can host a show yeah. and book significant acting jobs. It just doesn't happen in the oh, world. Thank you. You had also done Who's Got Jokes on, uh, I believe it was... TV uh, One. TV One, which was an urban show, and and you were doing that simultaneously as well, or the last year going into that in Last Comic Standing, which was also a comedy competition yeah. show. And again, for you young artists out there, you can make an impression and make your mark like Bill did with Janet Jackson, there were people on Who's Got Jokes that really impressed him and did really well. And then when it came time for him to do his next venture, yeah, Ladies Night Out, yeah, the tour and the concert documentary that you uh, executive produced, you used comedians from that project. And, you know, it was just God, man. It was just one of those situations where, you know, they call it kismet where things just line up. I met these talented young comics that I thought, you know, deserve a break. And I and I took a chance with them. I felt like, you know, they had, you know, the goods. And uh, I wanted to create a brand that I thought would be fun and kind of synonymous with, you know, a party, kind of like my MTV days where it'd be like, as soon as you hear, you're like, oh, I want to go check that out or I want to go there. So I thought, like, Ladies Night Out kind of sounds like fun. It doesn't mean guys can't come. It means that girls are getting dressed up. They're looking cute. And we're going to throw comedy on it. I didn't know it was going to work. <laughs> when you did the I didn't live, know it was going to work. When you did the live taping of the show, yeah. uh, the, the live concert part of the show, because it was a documentary about your yeah. travels, it was amazing. It was like all women were in the crowd. It yeah. was it was incredible. I, I mean, I've never that. seen anything like that. So Shout another, out to my ladies. Hey. <laughs> so like another groundbreaking kind of thing there. But again, giving that shot to people, they made their mark. There were a lot of people on Who's Got Jokes. Yes. A lot of people doing things. But you picked certain people that moved the needle. And now they're working with you and doing great things. Um, tell me a little bit about Fast Lane because, again, another situation where you're a guy who's cast in a action drama comedy completely kind of different. thing, completely different. And how did that come about? And let me tell you what's funny about that, man. You're just making me remember like moments in my career. I had another TV show called Men, Women, and Dogs at the time with Warner Brothers, and um, uh, 
my show got canceled so abruptly. <laughs> I think we were still shooting when we got canceled, right? I was like, do we finish this scene? Yeah, but it'll be your last. <laughs> so real quick, I'm going to speed the story up. We got canceled. I was so bitter at the time. I just got this show. I mean, I'm making crazy money. This is a cute little show. It's safe. It's like guys with dogs. It's, you know, I'm a chef, you know, and I got this. We go to the dog park, and it's a male-driven show. It was perfect, I thought. Got canceled, like, at the sixth episode. I'm done with TV, right? Told my agents, don't call me about no more TV stuff. I am done. <laughs> Cut to, I'm in the airport, LAX. I'm about to go do a concert. Booty call? I don't know what I'm doing. Booty call. So anyway, um, my manager at the time goes, Bellamy, listen. His name is Daniel Rappaport at the time. Daniel said, Bellamy, I want you to meet this guy. He's a young director. You know him probably already, but he's going to do a show. You got to meet this guy. He loves you. And that man had a very interesting name. Mick G. Now, I knew Mick G when he was just a video director when I was on MTV. I didn't know he was going to blow up and become this, like, director, producer guy. So cut to it. It's like, follow me. I heard you don't want to do TV no more. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm done, man, with TV. He said, no, oh, come on, brother. Come on, brother. You got to come to my office. You got to come check this out. I got, I got something for you. I'm going to make you bigger than Will Smith. And I said, what? I said, man, I'm getting ready to get on this plane. I said, listen, <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm going to come in, man. I'm just really going through it right now. He was like, Bill, trust me. What does it take for you to come to my office on Monday? When do you come back? He said, do this. Come to my office. 11 o'clock, please be on time. I got something for you. So I come back. I go to his office. It's this cool little office. He goes, I'm going to show you what I want for you. And he puts on a collage of all these badass movies with buddy buddy guys. Energy is sexy, it's cool, it's fast, and it's funny. So he's just like, cuz he said, see, see this right here? See that explosion? See the hot car? See the hot bitch? See that? <laughs> That's you. You right there. You see you right here. this is how he's talking real fast. And I'm like, what? He was like, look, I'm telling you, man, this is it. This is the show. It's like, it's like um Miami Vice on steroids. It's cars, it's slick, it's sexy, it's you, and I want you to meet this white guy real quick. I think he's the guy. So 10 minutes later, Peter Facinelli comes in the, office, in the office. He's got on like dingy jeans. He's a good looking guy. He's kind of like, you know, rugged looking guy. And uh, I'm like, yo, what up? He's like, yo, what's happening, right? He said, I just want you guys to read it. Just read it. I just want to see what it is. So again, <laughs> this is what happens sometimes. You just go into situations and had no idea. you have no idea but you have to have the mindset that no matter what the world throws at you, whatever profession you're in, personally or profession, professionally, you, you have to be in a situation yes. where you can handle any situation seamlessly, even if you aren't prepared, because the experiences in your life, like the Peppermint Lounge, prepare you for this prepare moment. Prepare you for this moment. So get this. This is, this is crazy how my life is. So I go in. Me and Peter start reading the lines, just reading the lines in the room. We're sitting in front of you reading the lines, and the chemistry is crazy. Never seen him before in my life. 
you would think that we've been together for 20 years, how we were just going back and forth, going back and forth. Mick G goes, that's it. <laughs> Let's go. Let's drive to Burbank. I said, what? Where are we going? He said, we're going to do that in front of Peter Roth right now. Now, Peter Roth was the head of Warner Brothers. Head of Warner Brothers. Now, keep in mind, he just convinced him to go from an airport to there. He just says, hey, you're coming he said, for a meeting. Just, just come in for a meeting. Something. We go, we drive <laughs> to Burbank like a caravan to Burbank to go to Peter Roth's office. Me and Peter are sitting outside, right? And Mick G goes in with all the producer people. He comes back. Peter wants to, guys, just do what you did in the room. Just read it. That's all you got to do. We go in there. Peter is sitting there and me and, and uh, Peter Facinelli come in there. And now, we, Peter is known as the executive who always hugs you. He hugs the shit out of you. Hugs you like literally like man. your grandmother hugs he, he you. Treats, he, he treats you like you're his favorite nephew. And you've never met him before. Never met him before. He goes, hey guys, I love you. <laughs> hey buddy, Bill Bellamy, right? Peter Facinelli, let's see what you guys got. So we sit there and we just go into the scene and it's fire because it's funny. We're ranting. You know, we're, we're like... It's like a New York cop meets the L.A. cop, and we both have different personalities, and we're conflicting, but it works. You know what I'm saying? So we're going through this banter, and they go, "That's not, we love it." We go back outside. So me and Peter are sitting in the hallway, and we're like, "What? What was that? Did you know you was reading for the net for, for the head, the head of the damn network?" He said, "No, nobody told me that." Mick G comes out, "You did it! You did it! They love you guys." We're like, what the fuck just happened? He said, dude, I didn't wanna I didn't want to scare you guys. I just want you to, I just want it to be natural. <laughs> so he so he just rammed us into the to the network. Then the network said they loved it. And next thing you know, I'm on billboards, sunset, Times Square. It's crazy. Crazy. That's how it happened. Amazing, amazing stuff. I can't believe you make me remember this stuff. This is crazy. <laughs> did I really do this? First podcast you ever did. We gotta cover everything. So finally, just talk about the show you're doing now that you're executive producing with mm -hmm. uh, Byron Allen and um, and that stars yourself and John Lovitz and your friends uh, Alex Thomas and Tony Roberts, Vivica Fox. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about that and uh, and how that came about and and what's going on. Well, Vivica, um, not Vivica, Mr. Box Office is a show that's in syndication right now that I am, you know, producing, you know, with Brian Allen and myself and also you as well. And basically it's a, it's a show that's very, very similar to my life, you know, living a Hollywood life, but this guy has a heart. My character is a guy named, you know, Marcus. And uh, Marcus is the kind of guy that is, you know, sort of made a lot of money. He's like got his entourage. He's got his mansion in Bel Air and all that. But he loves these kids and he wants to help, you know, help them get to a better place. So he's he's teaching voluntarily. He doesn't have to do that. He's going to do his movies in the summer kind of guy. And I, I liked this story. And I said, you know what? This is something that would be kind of fun on TV. It's relatable. And um, we sold it into syndication and, you know, the BET Century picked it up as well. That's just one of um, another TV show that I've had an opportunity to do. And also, you know, I'm proud of it. Uh, I get a chance to do a lot of funny stuff that I want to do. You know, I get to I get to freak it. So I like that a lot. Um, also, you know, and I still do my stand up and 
it's it's a career like I heard somebody say this. It takes you twenty years to become an overnight sensation, right? And I still feel like in my career, like I haven't done anything. You know, I feel like I've done some things, but I just feel like I'm such so ambitious. You know, I just want to keep grinding and keep getting better and being becoming the best comedian ever. I want to, you know, still want to get an Oscar. I still want to get, a, you know, an Emmy and things like that. For just like, just acknowledge that you that you, your work is valued. You understand? I mean, it probably won't mean anything at the end of the day, but, you know, these are things in our business that mean a lot. You know what I mean? So I, I am a hard worker. I am tremendously ambitious and, you know, this is my first podcast and I just, you know, when I, when people listen to this, I just want you to know that, you know, it's no coincidence success. You prepare for that. You know what I mean? You make it happen. You know, you demand it from the universe when you work hard, you know, and you go out and you, and you visualize your future and you, and you make the moves to get your dreams to become a reality. You know, it's not coincidence at that point. Do you understand? So I feel like, you know, I'm here for a reason and, I, and I'm really trying to, you know, step it up and also help a lot of people. You know, it's not just for me. It's not just like, OK, I just want to be the best, you know, comedian, actor in the world. No, I want to help other people, you know, achieve their dreams as well. That's great. And just a, a few more things. Mm -hmm. Tell me your biggest disappointment in show business and your proudest moment. Um... I would want to say my biggest disappointment was my NBC deal. I had a NBC deal, blockbuster deal. Um, a seven-figure deal. It was seven figures, and when I say seven, it was seven. And I, uh, I want to interrupt here by, <laughs> by showing something. Def Jam, under $1,000, yeah. launches you to superstardom. A deal that's literally like... It happened on a Tuesday. I was in an office, a huge office in Burbank. And I don't know, I'm not going to say any names, but the the head of NBC at the time was like, what does he want? We got to have him. And we just threw some money up in there. We threw some, some figures out. And they was like, that's nothing. Now, the best thing about that was I got more money in one day at that time than I ever made in my life in one day. A check was written for me in one day. And I was rich in one day. <laughs> <laughs> I remember calling all my people back home in Jersey and I'm like, yo, I'm sitting on some millions right now. And um it was crazy day. So I leading to I got this big television deal. It's in the it's in the um all the trades all this stuff is going on. My life is like, oh, my God, don't you know that show never happened? And I was so mad about that. I was just like, ah, why would they do that? Give me this money. And we we got the writers. We did the thing and the yada and the whole deal kind of fell apart. And I was disappointed. That was a disappointment. But the money was good. Um, one of my proudest moments, um, one of my proudest moments recently I would like to say, and it's going to sound really, really weird, was doing Crazy Sexy Dirty. Which was your my uh, one hour special. And that's that's one of my proudest moments, yeah. too. Because, again, as a manager, one of the things when I met with Bill, 
um, to talk about representing him, he came into my office with a DVD yeah. of two kinds of thought processes of, of shows. One was the ladies' night out, and one was the concept of crazy, sexy, dirty. And at the time, Bill, was, and still is, just an extraordinary stand-up comic, but for some reason hadn't done an hour special in probably 13, 15 years. Easily. And nobody was giving him an hour special, right. unbelievably. Right. And I said to him, again, through confidence that I had myself, if I can't get you an hour special, fire my ass. Yeah. I will do that. I remember I will that. get it for you. And one of my proudest moments and biggest disappointments was the fact that I met with Bill, had a great meeting with Bill, and I thought, finally, this is it. We're <laughs> going to be working together. This is going to be amazing. I, I was that. so happy. Yes. I was like dancing through the office. And for a Jew who has no rhythm. You were really dancing. It was really dancing. <laughs> and so I'm ecstatic. I'm getting ready. It's getting ready for the holidays or whatever. And right before the holidays, I get an email from Bill saying, Barry, um, thank you for all your interests, but I've decided to go in another direction with management. <laughs> I know. I remember that. I and felt he, so he, bad, but I felt like I had to. I he, said, I got to do he this. hired another manager, and I was like, what? Oh, my God. Are you I kidding can't me? I can't believe it. This is like, I know I can make these specials happen. I can know I can do it. Yeah. I was so disappointed, but I didn't want to burn a bridge with Bill because I knew that. I had a confidence level that I, I knew that he would be there someday to work with me. And I got the call four months later that uh, that he said, listen, I'm gonna, we're going to do this. We're going to do the shot. And selling that special and, and, and seeing what you did, uh, again, one you of did my it proudest moments. You did it with me. It, let me. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just want to say no, this, please this, this is why this is so one of my most proud moments because it was a concept in my head, like a joke that I wrote, you know, and I brought it to you and you didn't shoot it down. You did. You said you saw it and you said, I can make it happen without a, like, like not even a doubt in your head. You just said, Oh, okay, well we can do it like this. And you know, did you think about that? So you, you complimented that situation cut to, you and I in the truck. This is one of the moments that I was just like, I wish we had a camera to document what goes on behind the scenes. And by the truck, he means the truck that holds all the uh, screens and, and the, the colors and the directors and the cameras, right? And Barry says to me, Bill, let's go in the truck because I want you to be happy about everything. I never had a manager that was so detailed like that. He said, let's go in the truck and before we perform, let's look at what you want your fans to see. And we kept flicking through the colors. I said, ah, that's one. We like that. You like that. You like that. And we picked it ourselves. I've never had an opportunity to do anything like that. Cut to, I have been working on the road for two and a half years on this particular set for this night. We had a couple of, you know, bumps in the road with the production at the time. It was back stage. They were saying that I might. The audience might leave. They will leave. They ain't leaving. Um, ups and downs of the emotions. And and Barry said to me in my in my um, dressing room. He said, "Bill, listen, man. 
we come too far. This is your night. There's nothing going to get in between what's meant to be. And I was getting disappointed a little bit. And I never forget that when I was getting down in, in, in a down moment, Tommy Davidson walked in my, um, in my dressing room, right? And Tommy says, Bill, man, what's wrong with you? And I said, man, I just, I don't, I'm not feeling, I feel like everything's going wrong. He said, no, man, everything's going right. This is what you need to do. You go outside and you go talk to your fans and let them know how excited you are for them to be here for you. They've been standing out there for two hours. I said, there's people outside? <laughs> he said, yes, go outside and talk to your fans. And it just lifted me out of this funk. Like I walked outside and there was the line was around the corner and down the block for people to come see me. And it just invigorated me at the moment when I needed it, right? Cut to... And I just want to say one thing. Mm -hmm. The reason why Bill was feeling the way he was feeling is because these producers put on a show before him called, and I was Chocolate, supposed to go first. called Chocolate Sundays, which for those of you who don't know what that is, here in L.A., it's a stand-up urban show where they do sketch comedy and stand-up, and it's very blue, and it's very animated, and following sketch comedy is almost like following a rock and roll band. It's very hard, it's, and when it works, it's very hard. And again, not to, <laughs> not to digress, but Peppermint Lounge, yeah. MTV right there with no teleprompter, <sighs> Fast lane, crazy, sexy, dirty. I'm walking. I'm, I'm as you're listening to my voice. I'm remembering how I felt when I turned the corner. As right behind the the curtain, I see Dion Cole. He's standing right there on the right, and I'm walking towards the middle of the stage. And and the curtain, the people don't see me yet. And I see Dion Cole. And Dion Cole says to me, who's a very, very funny comedian and writer, he says, Bill, this is your moment. And as, I, as I'm walking and I turn the corner and it is packed. Like, like I thought no one was going to be there. It was almost, it was a hooser moment, like a, a, a greatest moment in a film where the, they get the touchdown and the people jump. So I turn the corner and I see that it's packed. Like it's sold out like it's, as far as you can see it's people and i really got emotional and i had to grab i like it was like an out of body experience walking out on stage something that you dreamed that you wanted to happen is really happening it was sort of like a um um deja vu thing and i morphed into the real moment and i just went out and it was just like Wow, the gods had blessed me at that time, and I went out and did that set, man. And it was just one of my favorite moments of my career because it just gives you, a, it's a testament to believing in a dream, being connected to the right people, and other people believing in your dream. Then there's no limits on what you can accomplish. That's right. Last question. Uh, what advice do you have for all the young comedians out there, or young artists in any profession or trying to figure out what they need to do to go from a moment where they're not making any money right. to get to the point to have the kind of career that you've had and are having. Well, what I would say to any young comic, first and foremost, do it for the love of what you, you your craft. Do it for the love. Don't, don't do it for money, you know. Money will come. You will eventually be paid for your gift. 
you have to love it first because the love is going to get you from the low to the high and back to the high to the low. So start with the love. Is it the passion that you have? Do you live it, breathe it? Do you dream it? Do you do do you feel like it comes out of your pores? If you have that kind of commitment to it, there's no limit to where you can go with it. The other thing is just getting, you know, on stage. It doesn't matter where it is. I mean, it could be a bar, you know, it could be a car wash. It could be, you know, hosting something, whatever, because with comics, we need the stage time. You need to have a mic in your hand. You need to be talking to people. You need to be able to exchange. You can't do that just like in a cafeteria talking to your buddies. You need to have, you know, um, the real equipment, the stage, the, the stool and the microphone and uh and and the passion awesome i am so grateful for you coming i thank you thank you so much bill this is very inspirational for me i'm I'm glad you had a great time jesus this is a great (laughs) interview give it up for barry (laughs) you're really good there buddy all right well listen who knew that (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much to have a it's the first compliment i've ever gotten So as usual, if you like the show, uh, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. This is Barry Katz with Industry Standard. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You'll get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.